Lord, indeed, thank you for your amazing grace. And even if we've heard the song as I have so many times, the words are still powerful. The words still speak of of your incredible love. And we just thank you for your amazing grace poured out upon us. We thank you that your grace covers us. And Lord, we, we just come as humble and grateful people today. And I pray that as we look at your word, we'll be reminded again that you are Lord of all. That you are Lord of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read uh, John chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to, to 13, and then I'll cover some other segments uh, along the way. But uh, John chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, and your, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen. Well, in this opening segment of this morning's text, we see that God's time and the Son of God's time is not our time. Jesus' brother's time and Jesus' time were not the same. In fact, as biblical scholars point out, it's actually questionable whether we should even use the word time in reference to God. Time is a word for finite creatures. But God is infinite. God is eternal. God is outside of time. And yet God is sovereign over all time. The Bible portrays time and history as an outworking of God's eternal plan. God is in complete control. He's working all things out in His time for His glory and for the good of His children. Everything happens according to God's schedule. And that's very clear in the life of Jesus. Paul said regarding Jesus' birth in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. 
Paul also speaks of Christ's return in a similar manner. 1 Timothy 6, I charge you in the presence of God to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. All in God's time. That's what's going on in the first part of our text this morning. No one, not even Jesus' family, is going to force his time. It's all according to a God-ordained plan. Jesus' brothers, like all the Jewish men in the vicinity, were preparing to go to, the, to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the ingathering, as it's sometimes called. This feast took place somewhere around the September-October time frame. It lasted seven days, culminating in a great festival on the eighth day. And during this time, the people built and lived in shelters made of branches, commemorating the time when their ancestors had left Egypt, and they were in that time of wandering, li living in those such shelters. According to first century Jewish historian Josephus, the Feast of Booths was the most popular of the three festivals that, that the, the men had to go to Jerusalem for. Therefore, the crowds in Jerusalem at this festival would have been enormous. And again, Jesus' brothers, like all Jewish males, were required to attend this festival. And so they assumed Jesus would be going. And because they really didn't believe in Jesus, verse 5, they must have seen this as an opportunity to force his hand. We don't know exactly what they were thinking, but it seems they hoped that by going to Jerusalem, Jesus would prove once and for all either he was or he was not the Messiah. But Jesus replied, verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Further, we've already been told in verse 1 that Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. You see, it simply wasn't Jesus' time yet. We know from the rest of the text that Jesus did indeed go to the festival, but he went according to his timing, and he went in his own way. And we need to be clear that Jesus wasn't afraid. Sure, there was fear of death. Uh, who wouldn't have fear? But he was not cowardly. The next spring at Passover, Jesus would indeed go to Jerusalem, and he would face his trial, his brutal flogging, and the crucifixion. But he would not be forced into anyone else's time frame. He would not be crucified until the fullness of time. Notice in verse 14, when Jesus did decide that the time was right, he went in the very middle of the festival, and he went to the temple. He went during the time when most of the people had arrived, when it was most crowded, and he taught in the temple the most dangerous place for him to teach. Proof that it all happened in accordance with his time. Proof that he was not afraid 
And proof that as he will later say about laying down his life in John 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What I want you to see here, folks, is make no mistake. Do not wonder about who is in control here. It's not Jesus' family, his disciples. It's not the religious authorities or Pilate and the Roman government. It is Jesus Christ. As Jesus said at, at his arrest, when he told one of his disciples to put their sword away, Matthew 26, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Beloved, please do not forget God was, is, and will be forever in control. He is sovereign over all things. And all things happen according to his timetable and his eternal, purposeful, and perfect plan. God is sovereign. In the fullness of time, he gave Jesus to live our lives, to be crucified for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to give us hope, and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's there now praying for us. And again, in the fullness of time, he will return to establish a new heaven and a new earth to give us new and glorious bodies, bodies that will never wear out. There'll never, ever be a church sickless again. And we will dwell with the Lord forever. Oh, glory be to God. Glory be to God. But each of us must determine if we believe this. Ultimately, we must decide if we believe Jesus is who he says he is. And I believe that's the thrust of God's sovereign plan to have Jesus go to the festival booths at the very time he went. The people there needed to decide who is Jesus? Who is he really? Look at verses 11 to 13 again. The Jews, and remember, when John uses the word Jews, he's not talking about all Jews. When John uses that word, he's talking about the Jewish leaders who were against Jesus. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Interestingly, the Jewish leaders were asking, where is he? But the people seemed to be asking, who is he? Who is he? Is he merely a good man? Or is he leading the people astray? And I believe neither answer is accurate. In fact, saying Jesus is merely a good man is really an impossibility. Yes, I know he was good. He was beyond good. He was the perfect man. But hear me out. I believe Jesus made too many shocking claims 
about himself to be merely a good man. And if his claims were wrong, he was not a good man. He was a blasphemer, as the Jews accused him of. Of course, I think his claims were true. But think about it. Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven to be the Savior of the world, to be the source of eternal life. He claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to have the power to raise the dead, to have the authority to forgive sins, the, the authority over the Sabbath. He claimed to be the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the Messiah, the Son of God. He made these and many other claims. And so one thing he cannot be is merely a good man. He was good, but he was so much more than that. Now, the next claim that he led people astray is in the realm of possibilities. But, of course, I don't believe it's true, but it is possible. As C.S. Lewis famously said in Mere Christianity, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who said he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and you can call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Listen, beloved, we must all decide who is Jesus. That is the most important question that you will ever ask and you will ever answer. Who is Jesus? The people of Jesus' day repeatedly asked that question. Uh, look, beginning at the second half of verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Or look at verses 40 to 43. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And beloved, there continues to be a division in our world over Jesus I'm sure you saw the He Gets Us commercials during the Super Bowl. The EPC is one of several denominations that help support and to pay for those uh, commercials. But all you have to do is to begin to Google it and search, and you see some of the backlash about those commercials, and you quickly learn that though He gets us, we still don't get Him. And there is a great division 
about who Jesus is. Everyone must decide who is Jesus. Apologist Josh McDowell, taking C.S. Lewis's cue, said you really have three choices when it comes to Jesus. Either Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. McDowell argues that it's in the realm of possibilities that Jesus lied to his followers. And if he couldn't back up those claims and he knew it, then he was a diabolical liar. But, says McDowell, this view of Jesus doesn't coincide with what we know either of him or the results of his life and the results of his teachings. Wherever Jesus has been proclaimed, lives have been changed for the good. Nations have been changed for the better. Thieves are made honest. Alcoholics are cured. Hateful individuals become channels of love. Unjust persons become just. Well, if Jesus wasn't a liar, then says McDowell, could he have been a lunatic? Could he have been sincere, but sincerely wrong? But think about this. In a monotheistic culture like Judaism, to say he was the Son of God would have been quite some flight of fantasy. Jesus would have been totally deluded and self-deceived. Someone like him today would likely be locked up so that he would not hurt himself or someone else. But in light of what we know about Jesus, being mentally disturbed just doesn't fit. Jesus spoke some of the most profound words that have ever been spoken. His instructions have liberated people from mental bondage. Theologian and apologist Charles H. Pinnock wrote, Was he deluded about his greatness, a paranoid, an unintentional deceiver, a schizophrenic? Again, the skill and the depth of his teachings support the case only for his mental soundness. He concludes, if only we were as sane as Jesus. Jesus wasn't a liar. He wasn't a lunatic. That really only leaves us one option, and that is that he was and is who he said he was and who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. You make the choice. But the Apostle John was very clear in his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. I assume that most of you are here because you've already declared that Jesus is Savior and Lord. But the concern I personally have for American Christianity, and you've heard me say this before, is that Jesus has a lot of fans, but precious few followers. He has many who will stand on the sidelines and will cheer Him on, but precious few who will actually get in the game and follow him. 
And as we saw last week, when, when the going gets rough and Jesus' teaching gets hard, Jesus also has a lot of armchair quarterbacks who sit in their recliners and think they have a better plan than that of Jesus' plan. But I must warn us all, myself included, Jesus won't be forced into our time frame. He won't be forced into our mold. And he won't be forced into the box we try to put him in. If he is Lord, he insists on being our only Lord, and he insists that we follow him in accordance with his will and his word. Is Jesus liar, lunatic, or Lord? You must choose. And if he is Lord, and I believe he is, and I trust you believe he is, will we follow? Will we follow? It's the question before us all this very day. Will we follow? Let's pray together. Lord, you, you don't pull punches. As we enter this Gospel of John, you just keep asking tough question upon tough question. Will we follow? Will we stay with you? And ever since you walked on earth, we, people have been trying to decide who you are. Some are deciding between liar and lunatic and Lord. Others are using words like good man or sage or prophet or the Christ. I pray that those gathered here have already decided that you are the Son of God, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray that having decided that we would live as you would have us live, that we would have no lords before you. I pray we won't just cheer you on. I certainly pray we won't criticize you or abandon you when the going gets tough. Oh Lord, please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might have the strength to follow that we might have the strength to follow no, no matter how you call, no matter what comes, that we would trust in you. Empower us, O oh God, to follow in accord with your will and your word and for your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace today and forevermore. Amen.